talk to you tonight about the roots of assurance in the Christian faith. We're starting Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let me read 11 verses. I'll maybe make just a couple comments uh, as we read through this text. Hope you have your Bible in some form. It's always a good idea. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, there's your clue that what he's talking about here is a logical conclusion for all of that involved study last week where we studied uh, the call of Abraham, circumcision, the giving of the law, the fact that Abraham was justified by faith uh, before the law was even given. And it's a very convoluted kind of study. We worked hard at it. And I said that there were practical results of it. And this is what Paul's doing now. Of course, the chapter divisions weren't there in the original. They just help us to piece together. So Paul's thought is continuing now on the application of some of that theology. Therefore, Abraham was justified by faith. And we, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, justified by faith and access by faith. That, that's interesting. A, a once for all and, and an ongoing approach. Obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We find the orientation of our lives to be most concerned about how they glorify God. Everything, everything about my life, what brings my life the most joy? How do you know? What does justification by faith in God's grace in your heart, what does it do? It, it means that the thing that gives me the greatest joy, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our lives are designed to make Christ look great. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Notice the repetition of rejoice. Rejoice because our lives have been so changed, so transformed. The woman at the well we looked at, living water, the thing we thirst for most is God's glory. And we discover that even in our suffering, in our suffering, we have the greatest capacity to make God look great. When I don't lose hope in the face of my suffering, it makes God look great. My treasure look abiding. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He brings a love for the glory of God through Christ. He brings that into our hearts in such a way that even in suffering, our greatest hopes are never dashed. That's what he means, not put to shame. You never ultimately lose. You never ultimately lose. You can't ultimately lose. Six, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, and then he catches himself. Well, perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. So I want you to notice, because this is less and less popular all the time, uh, I'm reading The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright, great scholar, but boy, he sure hates to tie the death of Jesus to the wrath of God. And, and this is clearly what Paul is doing here. You, you see how in the end of verse 6, I had it circled in my notes, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what he's talking about, the death of Jesus. Then in the middle of verse 8, Christ died for us. He's talking about the death of Jesus. And he says the result of that is we're justified by his blood and we're saved by him. The him is Jesus. We're saved from the wrath of God. He, you, you, you just can't unhinge the cross from the wrath of God. The wrath of God manifested against sin. Okay, 10. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more. I like when I see words, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We are reconciled. We shall be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice, that's the third time he's used that. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. I took too much time gabbing while I read that through. Sometimes you study passages like Romans 4, and the value of a pretty densely theologically argued passage aren't always apparent when you're reading it. That's the nature of Bible study, and it's good to remember it. When you're working your way through a book of the Bible, uh, a mature Christian knows that not all the passages of Scripture are immediately uh, appealing in terms of relevance. You read some things, and you go, what does this have to do with me? And you keep studying, and you find, oh, oh, oh that's why Paul was talking about Abraham being justified not by works, but by faith, because he's going to relate it to us and how we are justified by faith. Point number one, what justification means. Romans 5, 1, and the first part of verse 2. Therefore, I underline that, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So justification means peace with God. It's, it's important to know he's not talking about an inner state of peace of mind. It's, it's not some, this is not the peace of God that Paul talks about in Philippians. This is peace with God. It's different. It's peace with God because the alienation, the enmity, the separation, the penalty of sin and the just wrath of God against my sin has been dealt with. It's been removed. 
So this is, um, this is not the kind of peace you get sitting on a dock, looking at a sunset, listening to the waves ripple. Not that kind of peace. This is the kind of peace where you sign a treaty and it ends a war. That kind of peace. It's the peace that comes because God has borne the penalty for my actual guilt, not guilt feelings, my guilt. There's a difference. You can be guilty and not feel guilty. You can feel guilty and not be guilty. Sometimes your conscience terrorizes a person on some point. Those are two totally different things. He's talking about my actual guilt, the guilt of my sin, and God's wrath against it. He's actually talked quite a bit about this in verses we've already studied, God's wrath against sin. 118, famous verse, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the enmity. It's one thing to be guilty of sin. It's another thing to deny that you're guilty of sin. Or Romans 2.16, Paul talks about the day when Jesus comes. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? If I asked you what was included in the gospel, you'd say Jesus died for my sins to bring forgiveness through faith in him. And you would be correct. It's interesting that when Paul talks about the gospel, according to my gospel, he says, he also includes God's judgment <laughs> against sin. We usually don't think of that as being part of the gospel. No one is fully proclaiming the gospel without that part of the truth. And it wouldn't work anyway, because unless you know God's wrath against sin, why are you going to be so anxious for his forgiveness? Or Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath. So, so all of this is radically changed now through the entrance of grace, through justification, through faith in Christ. We have access into this grace, 5.2. Here's maybe the best way to understand the specific nature of this grace. I mean, as a devout Jew, Paul knew the reality of God's future judgment at the end time. He actually talks about it. Romans 2, we looked at this, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're, you're storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, twice he uses that word, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Now, as a Christian, Paul continued to believe in that future end-time judgment of God. Only now, through faith in Jesus Christ, believers have been granted the verdict of acquittal. Now, they've been justified now, in this present time. That's why Paul says we have grace, we have peace with God, 5-1, and it's grace in which we now presently stand, 5-2. So here is another aspect of the peace of God that's brought about by being justified by faith. When, when Paul speaks of having access by faith into this grace, he means justification brings more than just an end to the, the enmity with God. He says we've been, we've been, we've been brought into a, 
It's not just the negative removed. It's, it's being brought into a new positive relationship. A relationship of favor. The joy of adoptive sonship and daughtership. And the ongoing provision of help and mercy in this life. We haven't gotten to this verse yet, but in 8.15 he says, For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the writer of Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That would be unheard of apart from Christ. That we may receive Mercy, find grace to help in time of need. We stand in this ongoing flow of grace now. I'm using these different texts to pull together different parts of the whole message of justification. There are many benefits. Our text brings out one more. It's in 5, the last part of verse 2. Romans 5, the last part of verse 2. He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, so there's this deep sense of anticipation. There's a sense of having received, but not having received all. An anxiousness, uh, a hopefulness in the final manifestation of God's glorious new creation. It isn't here yet. But we have a joyful longing for it that, that deepens in the face of this dark, suffering world. Because, of course, any kind of suffering that we go through, it reminds us of the things we can't hold on to, doesn't it? Health, loved ones, finances, whatever it is. Our suffering shakes up the things we normally cling to. And Paul says what it does is it says, I'm, I'm sure glad I have a hope. I'm sure glad I have a hope. Time is cruel. We're playing over with uh, Jack and Braden and Jack, he's, what is he, six? Seven? Six. I knew he wasn't driving yet. He's got a, a thing like a cape and you pull it over and it's a Batman thing. And he, he charges around the house. And we're going to be playing and Grandma Rini was there. And Jack says, well, Grandma, you could be like um, a really, really old lady cat woman if you want. <laughs> so... Yeah, time is cruel. You can be a really old lady cat woman if you'd like. I'll get you a wheelchair. You know, we'll just. Okay. So what Paul's going to do now, justification by faith, this grace in which we stand, this hopeful longing for the future. There are two enemies to justification by faith. And he wants to talk about them. Point number two. The two enemies are suffering and sin. I want to talk about those two things. Point number two, how can we believe in the glory of justification by faith? Look at 3 through 11. 
more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Is that possible? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, character produces hope. There's that hope thing again. Hope does not put us to shame. It's not going to disappoint us. A lot of hopes do. Like nothing, nothing fills you with more false hope right than the first two days of a new diet. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to work in us. So how's the Holy Spirit going to work against the enemies of justification by faith and hope? Sin and suffering, those two things. So Paul continues, Romans 5, verse 6. He's going to deal with the sin thing right here. For while we were still weak, at the right time, what's that mean? The right time is after, after, all of this in your Bible, where we, the, the, the law has manifested its emptiness to save and pardon. It only condemns, reminds me of my guilt and my sin. And after all of this, where we've had all those sacrifices that the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats, it can't possibly remove sins. After hundreds and hundreds of years of that prepping us, at the right time, verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Now he's going to talk about this. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, even a really good person. Though, okay, perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. God's love is different, he says. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's through his death. For if while we were enemies, that's where I get that enmity with God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He's going to say much more. Now that we are reconciled, we're on the inside now. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He's going to tell us in Romans 8, 38 and 39, there's nothing in all creation, no external force or power in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. He says so. We'll get there. He's dealing here with something different. These internal, these internal enemies to confidence and hopefulness in Christ. There's the presence of suffering and pain and cruelty. That's A. Look around just in our church and see the kind of physical suffering and needs that are represented in this body of believers, doesn't the presence of that kind of suffering and pain, doesn't it mock the love of God? Doesn't he look rather indifferent? 
how can we all hold to such a divine love in the face of so much that seems painful, cruel, unabating? This is the first issue Paul faces in Romans 5, 3, 4, and 5, where he says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And he's not talking about a giddy, oh, goody, goody, I'm sick. Hee <laughs> hee, doesn't mean that. But, there's, but, but there's, there's, there's a joy. This isn't in your notes, and I shouldn't do this. Not time for it. There's a kind of joy that is sequential in the scriptures. Weeping lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning, right? So you go through a season where you're sad and then joyful. That's one kind of joy. But there's another kind. There's another kind. He talks about it here, where there's suffering, agony, sorrow, and in the middle of it, there's a joy working its way through it. You see the difference? It's not that everything goes away and then the sun comes up. That's talked about too in the Bible. A lot of things are temporary and joy comes in the morning. But there's another kind of joy that happens right in the middle of everything falling apart. Okay, That's the joy he's talking about. A, a hopefulness. A joy that can see through the dark. That's, that's what he's dealing with here. When, he, when, when the kind of suffering that produces hope more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Can you possibly grow in endurance apart from suffering? Think about that. Your pleasures teach you nothing about endurance. Am I right? Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not disappoint, does not put us to shame. God's love has been poured out. This isn't something you can just work up. The Holy Spirit comes and works this in your heart. So, so suffering diminishes faith only to the extent that it's viewed as an isolated event rather than something in the sovereign process of God in our lives that he will carry us through. We focus on suffering on the way it feels. God works through it to build hope. Suffering makes us ready for hope. Suffering and trials are the tangible proof that even God's plans for our lives are shaped more according to the age to come rather than this present one. There's a second enemy that Paul wants to deal with that robs us of confidence. The presence of sin in our own hearts. How can we anchor trust this is a very human question. How can we anchor trust in justifying faith when our hearts still feel so unworthy at times, so full of failure? The, the, the paradox of drawing close to the Lord is the closer you get to him, the more you're aware of your own sinfulness. A really bad person is totally unaware of his badness. As a person grows in holiness, he becomes more and more aware of inward sin. That's always the way it works. But how does that not rob us of faith and confidence when we feel unworthy? And this is the issue Paul's going to deal with in verses 6 through 11, and we're almost done. Hang in. He says, 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what a beautiful thing. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The biggest gift is given while I am at my worst. That's his point. The biggest gift is given while I am at my worst. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, now you see the logic of redemption here. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Future judgment, uh, you don't have to worry about that. Why? For, there's the connecting word. The connecting words are the most important words in a passage. For if, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the whole idea that's being unpacked in those verses is attacking the issue of doubt for our unworthiness. And I'm not sure this saving faith is really working because, boy, I'm a, I have so far to go. You don't know what's in my past. And the money sentence is in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God has designed it this way. If you are righteous enough to qualify for justification, you will never be justified. Because he only died for one kind of person, the ungodly. Jesus said, he said, uh, you know, the physician, they were, they were upset with Jesus. He's always going after these really bad people. He wasn't participating in their sins, but he was constantly reaching out to them. And the Pharisees couldn't stand it. If you were good... You'd know what kind of people you're dealing with. And, of course, what the Pharisees were doing is we are not like those people over there. And we're the kind you should be associating with. Jesus, in one of the most beautiful sentences, says, you know, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people need a doctor. And he describes his mission. His mission to the, to the, the sick, the ungodly, the unjustified. The sinners. Just to bring this down to an understandable level, Paul picks a pretty moving human analogy. He, he says, you know, there are times when people will lay down their lives for someone else. Soldiers can lay down their lives for a country. Parents can lay down their lives for a child. Maybe some noble person will give his life for someone else they deem very important. But, but Paul's point is, he says, nothing like that happened in the death of Jesus. Nothing like that happened in the death of Jesus. The whole point is, we were made sons and daughters of God by faith after the death of Jesus Christ. We were adopted into his family after the fact. But when Jesus came and when he died for me and for you, we weren't noble, we weren't worthy, we weren't qualified, we weren't family. We were enemies. God shows his love for us. Nine. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And Paul's mind runs into the future. And he pictures this, this final fulfillment of Father God's full manifestation of his glorious kingdom and our place in it. And he says, we shall be saved by Christ's life. That future is unstoppable. If God, in the past, came and died for me and for you when we were his enemies, and if through Christ's eternally indestructible resurrected life he intercedes on our behalf, Paul's argument is, how can you doubt his reliability? He did his biggest work when you were at your worst. Now that you're sons and daughters, do you think he's going to fail? The biggest work was done while you were outsiders. Do you think he's quitting on you now that you're his children? Celebrate it, church. What a marvelous passage. Let, let that love fill your heart with hope in suffering, confidence when you fail. Do repent, but don't live with condemnation. It's one of those passages where it's, it's striking. Like, that's a great passage, and you think, what does that have to do with all that tangled arguing that went through Romans chapter 4? And then you realize, oh, that's where Paul was going. What he's saying is, this, this was always the same. Go right back to Abraham. It was the same plan, justified by faith way before the giving of the law. And if a plan has stood for that long in God's sovereign love, you can bank on it for as long as you live and for all eternity. And everyone said, 